Hello and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with Tony Rojas, president of Slalom, a consulting firm focused on technology, strategy, and business transformation. Slalom has organically grown to 8,500 team members in 40 markets and eight build centers around the world. Prior to Slalom, Tony held several positions, including president and co-CEO at Corbis, a digital media startup by Bill Gates, and he began his career with Deloitte. In this interview, Tony talks about the future of the AI-driven enterprise, cloud-native storage, and some ways to improve higher education. So please enjoy this interview between Tony Rojas and your host, Steve Hamm. In your career, you made a transition from an accounting background into Corbis, the visual media company owned by Bill Gates, and later to Slalom, which is primarily a tech consulting company. How do you think about the narrative arc of your career? Uh, simply put, I'm a builder. Since graduating, you know, graduating from college, I've worked at three companies, Deloitte, Corvus, and now Slalom. And at Deloitte, I'm very thankful. I learned my, what I call is my second language, the language of accounting and finance. In, in a way, it's just another language like French or German or Spanish. And it was a good building block for me. And, and again, I'm very thankful. At Corbus, we were on a quest with Bill Gates uh, to build the world's largest photo archive, uh, take like a, a visual Wikipedia. And now at Slalom, uh, where I've been for a little over 15 years, it's a different quest uh, to build a multi-generational technology and consulting firm. Kind of has a heart and a brain, purpose-driven, values-led. That whole arc it's been about building. My dad was a plumber, and I guess I'm just a different type of builder. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good answer. At Corbis, you were the yeah. co-CEO, and you, re you reported directly yeah. to Bill Gates. What was the most important leadership lesson you learned from him? I think I, would, I surprise people when I'm asked this question at company events. Mm. Bill's greatest skill is the art of listening. And I have to distinguish. There is a difference between listening to respond and listening to learn. And I have to always practice it. Sometimes I'll want to jump on a question and I'll cut off a person. And he listened impeccably. His skills were world-class. I'd watch him come into a meeting and let's say uh, there was a developer presenting on some new technology or there was someone working on our digital capture of photography and he would listen so carefully. And then when it came time to ask questions, he would laser right in with the best questions that showed and reflected how he was learning and got us to the next level. And I've always said that he had a kind of an unfair advantage because he had a great, he had a great intellect. He had a great ability to absorb information, but he had world-class teachers on all these different topics, giving him fed and very discreet nuggets, information, and through his listening abilities, kind of able to pull all that together. It was really quite astounding. So I had a different experience with Bill. I was a tech journalist. I still am. But I was, <laughs> in the, I was in the Valley and then in New York in the in the uh, late 80s and the 90s and the thousands. And I did interview Bill a number of times. Bill was a pill. When, when, when journalists asked him questions, he would, first thing he would do would attack your question. 
there was always something in your question that he found not quite right or indicated that you really didn't understand the situation. So, so the first thing he'd do is spend five minutes telling you why your question was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly, the way you chose your words, did you notice how you said he attacked the question, not the person? He was really good about that. You know, going after the 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 power of the question, uh, I found that quite uh, also quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, he. I think you're right that that was that was his style. And, well, he's just a he's a super yeah. analytical guy. So of course he wants things to be precise, uh, going in both yep. directions. Yeah. When we prepared uh, for meetings with him, it was like preparing for finals in college. Mm but you were doing it once every month or every other month because you wanted to have that answer to bring up to him to show you knew what you were talking about. He kept you on your toes. That's for sure. Now, 15 years ago, you, you, you left Corbis and you joined slalom. I wanted to know why did you, why did you join slalom? What was it that attracted you? Uh, Friendship Uh, in your life. You, I believe in kind of the yin and yang, and I joined because of friendship. I was drawn to Slalom by Brad Jackson, uh, one of the co-founders, who I'd known since my freshman year at Washington State University. And I've stayed not only because of my friendship with Brad, but the friendship that I built with so many people at Slalom that truly and deeply believe in our culture and, you know, making an impact, getting up in the morning and being excited about what you're going to do. How would you describe the company's culture? Our culture is one of focusing on learning, not knowing. Let me explain, you know, going into something kind of with, with the experience of an adult, but of the eyes to look at the world in kind of a new way. And in that shared experience, truly believing in all stakeholders, not just shareholders, not just our clients, in our community, in the, our clients and customers. And when you can balance all your stakeholders and, and believe that you can bring your authentic self to your company and not be judged, it's, it's something special. And the power, the magic of Slalom is not one person. It's not the senior most people. The magic of Slalom, what's been created here, is everybody in the village contributes what they know, what their experiences are. But they do it in a way that everyone then can benefit it. And uh, I feel fortunate to have found the company and to have been here for over 15 years. Yeah. It's interesting what you talked about, about the learning part of the culture and seeing the, the world in a new way. Because, you know, I think of some of the big management consulting firms, and we're not talking tech consulting, but management consulting. Often they go into their clients with already kind of a framework that they, you know, this is how they see the world and this is the way it's almost like they take their client and mold the client to their framework. But it sounds like what you're saying is you go in with an open mind and really want to empathize and see the world through their eyes. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, The words that come to me are adaptability 
and humility. Uh, adaptability for us to go into a particular client in an agnostic way, we're not bringing certain technology, and to look at really what is it that they're trying to solve and ask those questions, those hard questions, because sometimes what they've asked us to solve isn't exactly what they want solved. And that adaptability and to be able to fit in, one of our the best compliments that clients give us is when they sometimes forget that we're from outside their own company. Mm-hmm. When they're in a meeting, they don't even realize, they don't sit there and look at the person across the table and think slalom. They actually think, well, this person or this team is part of my team. So that adaptability and the humility part is, you know, we're all on this journey together, whether it's technology or COVID-19. And so to kind of come in with an open mind that other people have great answers and to be able to accept those and weave them into what we offer. So it sounds like the essence of an engagement is really a conversation. Starts with a conversation, exploration, more questions. But it, it, at a certain point, it pivots to a brainstorming, where are they at on the journey, How, what projects have gone successful, what projects haven't gone successful, when have they had success working with an outside technology and consulting firm, and when have they not. Uh, and so conversation up front pivots to brainstorming and then eventually to the solutioning and then eventually the execution. The success of a project is always based in the work that's done up front, always. And the work up front is both you going in, knowing a lot about them, and then having that conversation, it sounds like, yeah. Yes. Makes sense. So how do you divide up the executive tasks and responsibilities with your two co-founders, Brad Jackson and John Tobin? I mean, are you more of the financial guy, or how do you cut that? (laughs) Uh, So... Our partnership is less about the division of tasks and responsibilities and really more about the diversity of thought that each of us brings to the table and that really of our broader executive team. Uh, Brad is your entrepreneur. He creates the vision. He pushes us uh, to help each other. And he really, he's really focused and cares deeply. Brad cares deeply about each person loving their work and life at Slalom. John's passion, he's your consultant's consultant. He loves career development. He loves thinking about the training that each consultant could have to make them better. And he believes deeply in our core values. And his favorite is doing what's right always. Now, I'm your jack of all trades, master of none. And and true, I have that financial language. So does Brad. He came out of Price Waterhouse. I love strategy and operations and... In a normal day, I'm focused more on getting better than bigger. Well, let me tease that out a little bit. So what do you mean by that? That sounds, it sounds kind of com- intriguing. Yep. Yeah. Right. So we're a privately held company focused on being multi-generational. And we've been growing organically at, in double digits and are north of $1.8 billion of revenue. But to be honest... Whether we're 1.8 or 5 billion or 10 billion, my, my core job is actually how to improve our team's experience while they're out small. So in response to COVID-19, so much of my job right now is communications, explaining where we're at, what we're doing, how we're reacting, 
how we're providing support to each team and individual within the company. So my focus is around the individual and around their experience of slalom. So that's why I care more about better than bigger. Now, with that said, we have aspirations like any firm to make a bigger impact. We're in four countries today. We have 40 offices. We have 8,500 men and women. And, you know, we've, you know, crystal ball looking out to 2030. We could be in as many as 15 to 20 countries by then. So we have to prepare for scale. But personally, I enjoy making the experience better. That's where I get most excited. Yeah. Hey, what countries are you in now? U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and we have a team in a fifth country that's seeding in Tokyo, Japan right now. Okay, great, great. So you're in about 40 cities. You work with a wide array of companies, industry giants to startups, all different industry verticals. What are the most powerful technology and business trends that you're seeing right now? Number one priority is speed. Last fall, I was with a small group of uh, leaders from across several companies led by Wharton University professor. And he took us on a personal tour across China, South Korea, Singapore. When I returned to the U.S., I was sharing with anybody I could talk to inside the company the speed at which innovation was happening in particular in those countries was breathtaking and how fast they were moving and how few barriers that I was looking at and their obstacles that were in front of them. They were moving so quick. And with the impact of COVID-19 on all of humanities, all countries and companies now are learning how to adapt. And in today's crisis that's impacting all of us, it's about speed and not perfection. Speed is paramount. And there are a lot of companies that they're going to have to jump from second or third gear into fourth or fifth. And, and they, may, they may be concerned about failure. Um, but I would, I would tell them speed is so important right now. It is the number one business trend that we're seeing. Yeah. So are you talking about your clients and the speed with which they adopt new technologies? Or are you also talking about the tech sector and, and the kind of innovations that it's bringing forward? Uh, in, in some ways, both. When we were traveling through China, I, I very rarely saw anyone uh, conducting commerce with uh, currency. A significant amount of transactions that we did or were done by people I watch we're all mobile. And then you come back to the U.S. and you see people using credit cards, cash, et cetera, and you see how fast that's occurred, you know, from just a decade ago till now to see people using mobile at such a high uh, percentage. Second is in uh, the startups. You know, I was impressed with the speed at which they're innovating new companies. And I, I usually felt that the U.S. was, you know, that's ours. We're the best. Yeah. We innovate the fastest, you know. And I realized there's a lot of competition out there. And it's not just from in Asia. There's, there's a lot of competition globally. 
And so for the innovation in these startups, you know, we need, you know, we need to make sure that we uh, don't lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of competition out there. And then the last part is yeah. uh, speed within a company. Yeah. Hey, uh, you talked about the kind of the no cash, the end of cash thing. I realized recently I opened my you know, top bureau drawer and I saw some cash in it. And I realized that I haven't been to an ATM for three months and I haven't spent any cash or, or coins in three months either. And I just, and I don't even, I don't even anticipate it. I mean, the only reason I would carry cash is to give to homeless people, you know, so it's kind of a very, yeah. things are really, you know, there was a trend going, but now it's really accelerated. And it just goes to show you how, how that can happen. There can be kind of a pivot and suddenly it's a new world, you know? Some catalyst happens that changes then our behavior and opens our eyes. To the extent that this interview, you've done your interviews via telephone, sometimes in person over the years. But we had to pivot 8,500 men and women literally overnight from working on-premises at clients or at our own offices to working virtually and go through that learning curve of working with Microsoft Teams and other applications. And we've done so out of necessity. And so back to currency, do you want to, like, if you were to go to a store right now, would you want to be handing cash back and forth? Or would you sit, you would think second about that and go, hmm, maybe I should just use a credit card or even better, maybe I should use my mobile phone. Yeah, cash is like the perfect transmitter of a virus, you know. It's really very efficient. So no more of that. You talked about, I mean, when I think about the changes that have come with, with COVID-19, there are, of course, many of them. But one that I think about is a change in technology, which is the, the shift to cloud computing. And my sense is, you know, that was a, that was a big multiple, multi-year shift that was happening, very powerful. But my sense is that it's actually accelerating now. And I wanted to find out from you, is that what you're seeing? And if, and if it is, what's the cause of that? The migration to cloud has accelerated just in the last two to three years. We've been on the journey for a little over a decade. Uh, we were an early partner with AWS, Microsoft, Salesforce. And then when Snowflake, a couple of years into their journey, And in the last two years, I think it was never about the technology being the inhibitor. Most of the time, we've discovered that it was other. It was the resistance to change. Perhaps it was the pipeline of the technology projects that they got, they had in their, in their queue. It was usually non technology-related issues that were impeding the pace of change of migration to the cloud. And a tipping point happened. And it happened in different industries and different companies at different paces. But in general, about two to three years ago, that tipping point happened. And all of a sudden, the floodgates just opened up. But since the COVID-19, is there yet another acceleration? Because I would think a lot of companies want to they don't want to they don't want to spend capital 
and they can they don't want to have to buy new computers they don't have to buy new software new networking equipment so i would think the 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 lure of doing more computing in the cloud and especially doing more data processing and, and data management in the cloud would be even more attractive today than it was three months ago are you seeing that the three highest trends that we're seeing right now is collaboration tools migration to cloud and data and analytics getting the information to be able to make uh, faster decisions back to my point of speed earlier now you you talked about your alliance with amazon web services i've read that you have worked with them to set up launch centers for cloud migrations that's relatively recent correct yes in december 2019 we announced a partnership between slalom and aws where we would bring the best of aws technology slalom's consulting in particular around technology and the aws proserve team in an integrated offering where we could address things ranging from business strategy to data services change management to transformation services and we found that by doing so uh, the other secret to the success of the launch center is that we're not doing work simply for the customer we're doing it with the customer and that's important because when we lead them with the keys to the car they they have familiarity with what was done and they can drive it on their own now just the name launch center suggests a physical place i would imagine you're not using physical places anymore so is this something you've just totally transferred to video conferencing uh, even before COVID-19, we were doing virtual build slash launch tours. And while we had physical locations, we had already been working in a hybrid way. And so now that we're all sheltered in, in place, uh, that's not stopped our launch centers. All the projects haven't skipped the beat and they're continuing to grow and we continue to do more and more work through our launch centers. You mentioned Snowflake a minute ago and I believe that Slalom was one of Snowflake's first consulting partners. Can you kind of take us back down memory lane a little bit there? Why did you see them as a good partner and what kind of things have you done together? Uh, the story of our partnership with Snowflake begins in 2016. And like any good client story, I love it when the roots lie in client demand. And as we were seeing across industries, we were traveling, going to our different offices, and we'd ask our internal teams, you know, what are, what are some of their clients talking about? You know, what trends are out there? And what partners? And over and over, we kept on hearing about Snowflake. And then we were like, okay, let's unpack that. What about Snowflake? Well, it's their cloud native data warehouse solution. Okay, great. What, what specifically? Well, it takes advantage of the separation of com uh, compute and storage. And so that's where the roots lie, was really the demand from the client. And we also had at Slalom relationships with the initial leadership team. With that strong relationship and those client stories, it was a really easy decision for us to focus more of our attention on developing and expanding our partnership with Snowflake. 
Well, it seems just from the names alone, Snowflake and Slalom, it was a natural pairing, right? <laughs> okay. I have not ever thought of that until you actually said that. But yeah, Snowflake and Slalom actually do make a good partnership. Yeah. So what's a typical kind of engagement? I mean, do, is it usually your customers already have Snowflake? They want you to, to work on some integrations or... I mean, do you send business their way or do they send business your way? How does it work? Many times the client's already cited on the platform when they've engaged slalom. Uh -huh. However, when the decision on technology hasn't been made, Snowflake lends itself very well when helping clients do two things. Building a culture of data. And second, modernizing their data platform to make more data accessible and available. And that first item, that's really, I think, an opportunity for Snowflake to shine where a client's really trying to build that culture. And, and they don't look at it just as a tool, but they're on that journey themselves. Now, our clients appreciate the fact that we approach this agnostic. And there are programs that we've developed. Uh, one of them is called Moonshot. And it's in coordination with Snowflake, AWS, and Tableau. And clients love this because they can see the client's partners working together to bring them a cohesive solution and a message, and then to bring the best out versus the client having to stitch that story together on their own. And so we see these types of partnerships is actually being a strong benefit to customers that we mutually serve. Now, one of the strengths of Snowflake is the, the way it enables their clients or, or their customers, your clients, to share data with one another. So is that one of the attractions? You said you have so many customers or so many clients who, who already have Snowflake. Is there kind of a natural kind of plugging in business partnerships with one another that, that just comes out of that, of that capability? Absolutely. Well, Snowflake makes it easier to provide a cloud native and cloud agnostic, whether that's on AWS, Azure, GCP. So it's scalable, it's secure, agile data platform for analytic workloads. You also mentioned the sharing. So Snowflake's data marketplace makes it easier for the sharing and monetizing your data or utilizing shared data from others. Uh, and then the data exchange makes it easier to securely share data outside the four walls of your business uh, with your suppliers, customers, and, and employees. So, you know, the, the sharing of the information is, is very valuable, as well as the protection of that same data. So one of Snowflake's core attractions, yep. one, of its, one of its big marketing pitches to its customers, is that the customers can get started right away getting value out of Snowflake, you know, you know, even with a credit card, they can, they can be on, they can be doing analytics. So what value added does a consulting company like Slalom bring to the situation? Why are you needed? The saying a picture is worth a thousand words, but you need the right keywords to find the picture to tell a story. Well, data can tell a thousand stories but you need the right skills to tell the story. So often, Psalm has that deep technical expertise because of our work across industries, seeing how different firms are approaching similar issues 
with regard to data. And my career has been about data, given my, the language of finance and accounting. How do you give access to the data? How do you understand the data? How do you trust it? How do you govern it? How do you protect it? How do you surface it in the right way? And then ultimately, use the data to make decisions. And so while a client can absolutely flip on Snowflake and work it, I believe that there's a way to even get a deeper value from those that have been working cross industry or within an industry to figure out how to bring the best dashboards and data visualizations, how to use machine learning and AI to help you understand the predictive value that you're sitting on right now. And that's where I think Slalom can make a difference and bring that added value to a client. Now, we talked briefly a minute ago about launch centers, the thing you do with Amazon Web Services. But I know you also have these regional build centers, you call them, where you work with customers. These are innovation hubs. But what exactly goes on there? And of course, once again, it's probably not a place anymore. It's probably a practice. But if you could describe and, and contrast that with the launch centers, I think that'd be helpful. Yeah. So our build centers are comprised of around 1,300 technologists, uh, representing about 20% of our business, with 40 markets worldwide. We have eight build centers, and a relatively newer offering is what we call Slalom Build Edge Locations, where we have a small pot of team in some of our local markets where we don't have a full-fledged build center. Uh, think of these as onshore houses where we have capabilities to build modern software data products. 95% of the time, we're creating custom technology solutions. These are for enterprise or mid-market clients where they want to solve a problem and they want our team to sit side by side with them when we could do that, teaching them how to build in the same way. And now in a virtual where we're creating velocity for them to get these major initiatives completed, accelerated, faster than what they anticipated and then with a solution that they can then uh, take on themselves afterwards and operate. Yeah, so it, it, so it's not in person anymore, but you, but it's a lot of collaboration. So it's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of Zoom, Zoom meetings or whatever kind of video meetings, I guess. Well, build centers were actually ahead of the curve at Slalom with regard to our working virtually because yeah. we have these build centers in Chicago, in Atlanta, in Seattle, doing work for clients in Detroit, in Denver, in Phoenix. And so we were already used to working remote through our build centers. And so that group actually helped accelerate our pivot uh, to working from home. Yeah, yeah. So they were, but they were set up as regional. So obviously there was something about being close to the customer and able to have some of that face-to-face. -face. Do you imagine when, when the COVID-19 crisis wanes, that you'll get back to a lot more face-to-face -face meetings? Or, or do you think things have really changed? I think it's going to be hybrid. I really do. There are clients that do like to come in and kick the tires. They want to see what does a build center look like, yeah. you know, and meet with us to increase their confidence um, in our capabilities and, and to develop that personal relationship. So I still think that that will occur in the future. Yeah. With that said, COVID-19 
has opened our eyes and my eyes to working from home. And so I see us being kind of a hybrid in the future with regard to our work with clients. You know, I worked for IBM for about six years in communications. And it was during the time when Watson really came up, the AI. Mm. And they opened a they opened a center down at, in Astor Place in New York City. Incredible. All these giant screens, you know, 45 feet long by 12 feet tall. And it was basically like a, well, not a museum because it wasn't like, you know, precious, you know, stuff that was from the past or something like that. But it was actually demonstrations. And, you know, I just feel feel like the um, these days, of course, they can't have the tours come through and they, don't, they can't have the customers come through. I feel like they've got to be looking forward to the day when things do loosen up a bit so we can get back to that because there is something to to sharing an experience, to looking at something and, and kind of modifying it on the fly right in front of your face and stuff like that. So I do hope that, you know, we're able to do that to some extent in the future. It'd be, it'd be a real loss if we weren't. Yeah. You're talking about humanity. There is a desire uh, for us to be together. We are social. We are social. We want to work together. We want to build something together. And and I think that's what you're seeing a lot of right now. It's just the appetite for people to, to, to reconnect. And so while I think that there are going to be more flexibility from work from home or doing things virtually, you can't replace the human experience. We're creatures of habit. We enjoy being with one another. Now, I know that you have a deep relationship with Washington State University, where you graduated from. You're, you're a Washington State grad, you're a longtime trustee of the University Foundation, and you're the chairman of the board of trustees. Are you involved in two things, the foundation and the university trustees, or is it one thing? Okay, yeah, let me explain. So public universities, did you go to, when you mentioned the Yale, is that where you went? No, I was, I'm a graduate of Carnegie Mellon many years ago. Okay, so public universities and private universities. So private universities, since they, since they were founded, were based upon the combination of tuition and their money that they received from their alumni base. So they've had the foundation and the universities one and the same. Public institutions like Washington State University and, and many other across the United States, the source of their income was tuition, research that they would get, as well as state funding. Right, and right. so they did not have foundations. And it was only uh, in the last 50 years or so that public uh, institutions created a foundation for what I would call is fund and friend raising to support the university and to create their own endowments. And so those um, foundations did not exist until, like I said, the last 30 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the other aspect of why the universities created them is uh, public institutions, because they are public, uh, they are subject to FOIA. So the Freedom of Information Act with a foundation, a donor can anonymously give to the foundation and that can then be given to the university without disclosing a private transaction from your will or whatever. And so there's a secondary benefit for that. 
And so Washington State University has a foundation uh, that's been in existence for over 30 years. And I was the chair of that organization for uh, several years and uh, been an honor to be a part of Washington State University since graduating. Oh, okay. Are you still a trustee and the chairman of the board of trustees? or, or I am still, uh, as of today, I'm still a trustee and uh, I have rolled off as the chair of the trustees. Okay. All right. So as you know, someone deeply involved in the university foundation and in raising money for the university, you must do a lot of deep thinking about the future of public education, of public higher education. And I'm sure that this COVID thing is, is raising new questions about it. So what, what are you thinking is the future of public universities? And especially, what role can technology play in helping them be flexible and sustainable? All universities are not immune to the impacts of COVID-19. For private universities, they're going to have to think carefully about how they distinguish themselves from other institutions. If you were going to an Ivy League school, but you now cannot actually physically attend that school, the caliber of your academic team and your online experience has to be worth the differential that you're going to pay to graduate from one of those schools versus, let's say, a larger public university in any state. How do you differentiate? And so it's got to be on that academic and on that virtual experience if you can't be on premises. And if you can be at the actual university itself, those universities are not prepared to have that freshman class with a thousand people in that one big hall. They're going to have to look at a combination of students rotating into those classes or from their dorm or student living to join online. And so the access of technology for online learning plus the use of technology for the, I'll call it the rotation, the scheduling of classes and facilities to support um, the growing, the nurturing of these men and women across the country is, is paramount. For public universities, uh, they'll also be faced with a significant financial challenge due to state funding. With the drop in business, drops revenue and income, with the drop in revenue and income, you're going to reduce how much is actually earmarked towards the different universities. In the state of Washington, those they're particularly sensitive because under our constitution, K through 12 is protected. Public universities in the state of Washington are not. And so with the uh, drop off in revenue, it's going to impact how much money is available uh, on this next biennium. And that will be similar to public universities in other states too. Now, luckily, Washington State had a head start with its online program. They had pioneered an MBA program in U.S. News and World Reports, ranks them in the top 25 online. And so they had that backbone. Not every university had that set up. And so they're in the process now of really trying to focus on their technologies for uh, online learning, collaboration, and other tools. 
Yeah. It seems like the, the, the institutions that are going to be hardest hit are some of these smaller colleges that where their main attraction is that it's a, a small community, small classes, lots of contact with the professors and all that kind of stuff. And I really, I really worry about them because it seems like, you know, shifting to online, even temporarily is going to be, you know, something that their students are just not going to want to do. So. I worry for both the small colleges and the community colleges. Oh, yeah. The community colleges where you have individuals that are going after a two-year degree uh, to pursue their passion, or perhaps because of economics, they're going into a two-year college to then be able to spend the last you know, third and fourth year at a university. Those community colleges are going to be heavily impacted. Now you could you look around with this with this COVID thing, and you know there are very few positives. There are some. There are a few positives, like we we won't be we won't be carrying cash around. Mm. But most of the things are really uh, serious threats to um, the way we live. And you know, but I think when I go back to a significant positive would be like what you say with with the need for speed, and I also think the need for just understanding what's really happening and adapting to it quickly, being resilient is going to be another value that people recognize. And I think technology is going to play an important role in that as well. I think another aspect that you just triggered was in each state, there's a land-grant institution. In the state of Washington, the land-grant is Washington State University. And in the 1800s, Abraham Lincoln signed a bill. It was called the Morrill Act. And the Morrill Act was really uh, transformational at the time because up until that point, it was really the elite with money that went to universities. And the, the Morrill Act basically said, listen, we're going to give a parcel of land in each state to, to plant the seed of an institution, a university focused on the training of men and women in, in ways that are seen were unseen at that time. And it, was, it truly was transformational. It changed the, the nature of, of ed, higher education. And I think there have been other catalysts over the decades. And the most recent one now is obviously going to be COVID-19. And I think that the, the institutions will have to think, how do they best support their constituencies or the states that they're in? Washington State University is just one of those land-grant institutions it's responsible for the 4-H programs in all of the counties across the, the state. Every single institution is going to have to think how do they best support their state and their constituency. Well, actually, that, that triggers something in me. I mean, what, a positive from this is that it forces everybody to rethink the way they're doing things. And we all know how persistent legacies are and how difficult it is to get out of a rut. And sometimes a rut that you're in is, is a success rut. You've always done it in a certain way. And that it's very hard to think about changing that, typically until somebody forces you to. But, but I think it'll be interesting here to see if people really do think deeply about what they're doing and why they're doing them and actually really give a tune-up to a lot of the systems and processes that we're that we're using, modernizing, I guess would be the term. So the, the change in universities has a, 
bigger personal impact for my wife and I, we're sending our oldest daughter, McKenna, uh, with a little bit of a smile, a little bit of tears to Washington State University this fall. And while it may not be the same experience that I had when I was there, because we lived in a COVID-free world at the time, I am excited for McKenna, as well as many others, uh, and to see what the woman she becomes after four years there. So yeah. I'm excited. She picked it. There might've been a little influence on my part, but I was really proud the day she let us know just recently. Okay. Well, that's good. That's heartwarming. So I have one last question for you and I want you to put on your visionary cap for a minute and look out five, 10 years, however long makes sense. And tell us, how you see the use of data and data analytics changing society and business? As COVID-19 began to impact all humanity and the virus crossed the doorsteps of Washington State, just right here outside of Seattle in a place called Kirkland uh, was an epicenter at a local assisted living facility. And within that week, we saw two examples of how data and data analytics were changing society. One of them was at the University of Washington, lesser known Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And overnight, you heard from our president, other world government institutions, health agencies, and the general public were quoting the Institute for Health and Metrics and Evaluations stats on the virus. That's at a, at, at a university level. But what I found was really fascinating is a story that probably is only known in Seattle. I live in a place called Mercer Island. There was a 17-year-old Mercer Island high school student that my daughter knew. He was self-taught using the internet. And he built a website to share information real-time on coronavirus. And his website was being seen by millions. And so when you ask a question, putting the, you know, looking ahead five years, I really do find there are the intersection, like a Venn diagram. One circle is humanity. The second circle is data and technology. And the third circle is speed. I think that that is a trend that you're going to see in the next three years as evidenced by these two examples I shared with you on the University of Washington, the 17-year-old here. It was about humanity, it was about data and technology, and it was about speed of getting that information out. And overnight, this, these, these two websites were being used by millions. Yeah, it goes to, to show the power of data sharing as well. Yes, Tony, I want to thank you so much for your time today. You know, your stories and insights about what you do with data and how your clients uh, work with data has been really fascinating. And I, and I also feel like your, your insights into higher education have been really amazing as well. And I, you know, there are some scary things going on there, but I think that also there's a lot of hope. And, and the fact that you send your daughter to your alma mater with a lot of hope for her future, I think it says a lot. I recently had an opportunity at our town hall to talk about hope. And I said, hope's not a strategy, but with the 
the optimism of the word hope combined with a great strategy, we'll get through this. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thanks again. Absolutely. My pleasure. I uh, appreciate your questions. I I look forward to uh, opportunities someday in the future if you're crossing through Seattle to meet then. Uh, Until Mm -hmm. then, good. Yeah, What's wouldn't that? that be fantastic? We could meet in person someday. <laughs> <laughs> in the old days, that seemed pretty simple, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. until then, good health to you and your family. Great. Thanks for the offer. Very good. All right. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com data cloud world tour.